Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. As we've alluded to on our other shows, this offseason, our Crack Rackets team attempted to speak with every Power 5 men's and women's head coach employed throughout the college tennis world. We asked each of them about their team's respective 2021 seasons and what we should expect from them here in 2022. Of course, we also offered them a platform to share their thoughts on some of the big picture topics in college tennis. It is a fantastic series that our team is ecstatic to finally start sharing with the broader college tennis community over the next six weeks. Fans can expect no fewer than 10 episodes a week to be posted on this feed. A huge shout out to our friends at Tennis Point for their support with this series. Remember, go to tennis-point.com right now. Use that promo code CR15 to express your thanks. With all of that said, we're ready to get to today's episode. So Westoff, hit those credits. Let's start today's show. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Joining us on the podcast once again today, a now returning champion here to our Crack Racket shows. Of course, you may know her best as a two-time All-American and Dean's List honoree during her playing career at the University of North Carolina. Of course, now we know her as the head coach of the University of Virginia women's tennis team. Welcome back to the show, Coach Sarah Leary. Coach, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. And wow, that time at uh, Carolina seems so long ago. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for all that you're doing for college tennis. I mean, it's just fantastic. So very excited to be here today. Oh, you are too kind. Yeah, I feel like anytime you're two times Dean's List honoree, you got to throw that into the intro, right? Because that's (laughs) That's hard-earned academic hours, Uh, but, you know, the question I always like to ask, because going back to your playing career and from there, you go right into the coaching ranks. It's it's been, you know, now a lifetime of college tennis, and I'm curious what it is about this aspect of the sport that keeps drawing you back. Yeah, I mean, good question. Tennis has always been such a big part of my life. you know, I left home when I was in eighth grade, actually, to go to a tennis academy down in Florida. I grew up in Colorado, so um, there wasn't a ton of tennis opportunities in Colorado. So my family felt like that was best for me, and it was a big decision. But I think it really helped pave the way for you know my career now. And I've just loved being a part of tennis. And then when I got to college, seeing what a team environment it was like, it just made me fall in love with it even more. And so. I've been really blessed to be able to, you know, work with some amazing coaches and learn so much along the way. And yeah, here I am, you know, 14 years later after I graduated, still coaching and and loving it and at an awesome place like UVA. So very, very fortunate. Colorado Tennis Hall of Fame is something else I could have slid into that intro as well. That's got to be a fun ceremony, right? Do they bring you out and it's you give a nice little speech? Yes. Yeah, they, they do a a big, big banquet. It was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I had to give a speech, which I don't love getting up and giving speeches, but, uh, it was, it was really cool. And I got to see a lot of people that I grew up with and played with and old coaches. And so 
yeah, it was really, really a special event. Yeah, no, that's awesome to hear. And obviously, speaking of special last season, a special one for the Cavaliers as you know, you guys deliver a national championship back to Virginia, which of course is always so, so impressive. And I think that's just where we have to start because obviously you look at the season of Emma Navarro, who goes 25 and one overall on the year. And that one loss was to the player she ends up beating in the NCAA singles final. And just to, to see that performance from her as a freshman, you know, what does that do for the rest of your team? Yeah, I think that Emma is just, I mean, she's such an incredible leader on and off the court. I don't know if people know a lot of what Emma's like off of the court. Um, clearly, she's done amazing. She's worked so hard to get to where she is. Um, I mean, just one of the hardest workers I've ever seen. But um, she just, she has such a great self-belief. Um, and I think her, you know, her family's done an amazing job raising her. She's one of four. She's very close with her family. And, you know, she came into college. She, she wasn't here last fall uh, due to COVID reasons. She was going to be here in the fall. Um, she did classes online, but due to COVID, she decided it'd be best to stay home. So she came in in January and actually was sick the first few weeks of the season. So we couldn't even practice with her. So she really just got thrown into the mix um, when we went to the kickoff weekend at Ohio State. And, you know, even though she was so nervous, it was so new for her. She just went out there, put her head down and just fought for every single point. I mean, she did not play her best tennis, but I think it just goes to show like, she just has this self-belief in herself. And what, what I love about Emma so much is what she's so good at is staying in the moment. You know, she, and that she's like this in all of her life. You know, she doesn't look ahead. She doesn't worry about the past. She stays so focused on what she's doing in that moment, that day. And, you know, it's, it's such a strength of hers. And I think it's, it's what's helped her, you know, be so successful last last season and continue to just develop and improve because she doesn't worry about these things that have happened in the past, or she doesn't worry about the future. She just stays so focused on what's happening in the present. And I think it's such an amazing strength, but yeah, I mean, the team absolutely loves her. I mean, she's also hilarious. I don't know if people know that, but she comes to practice and she's dancing and cracking everybody up and just has a great time. I mean, she just really, really loves tennis, the team atmosphere. She loves the team. So it's been, it's been an amazing fit. And I think she's doing some amazing things for college tennis right now. Mm -hmm. And when you look, you know, you talk about the lack of fall for Emma and it was a lack of fall for your entire team. And, you know, obviously the fall is such a critical developmental period. I'm curious for your team. I know you lose that match to Ohio state on the kickoff weekend, but you know, your team starts 12 and two overall at the start of the year. And obviously that's in an ACC conference. That was the best conference in women's college tennis last season what allowed your team to get off to such a quick start, even given the lack of fall play? Yeah, so last fall was such an interesting time. Um, and I think we just had to be really creative and kind of think outside the box as to how we were going to handle those months without being able to play any competition. Um, thankfully, you know, Boars had held some UTR events. So we had some players playing those. But what we did is we just made the whole fall a huge competition. We put the girls on two different teams. And I mean, we were competing from mini tennis. They would hit the first ball in mini tennis and compete with each other. And then they'd go back and they'd play a warm up game. And I mean, from everything that we did, I mean, we were doing games off the court. We have, you know, they'd come over to our house and play cornhole and we have a dartboard. And I mean, it was everything and it went the whole semester. So we had to find a way to allow these guys to compete because that's what they love to do. And we hadn't been able to compete since March, you know, our season got ended or it ended the beginning of March. And so that was just their way of being able to compete. And so I think that that did help them going into that, that spring season. So Who's the best um, cornhole player on the roster. Probably Rosie. She's a <laughs> Rosie's just such a good athlete. I mean, yeah. she just figures it out. And yeah, she's she's a little bulldog and she she would beat everybody. So I would definitely say Rosie. <laughs> yeah, that's half the fun. And yeah, I mean, again, looking for your team, you talk about, you know, 
getting to start that 2020 season. And I was there at the national indoors in 2020 in Chicago. And, you know, at the time, Natasha was a freshman playing number one singles and you could just tell right away. And I know it's an eye test thing, but just, you know, she fit in hand in a glove on that number one singles court. And to have, I suppose, the luxury of getting her to play that number two single spot, you look 16 and five overall. And then, you know, you mentioned Rosie, who was 16 and four at number three, 17 and four overall. Talk to me about the top three last season, their performance throughout the course of the year. Obviously, they were able to do a lot of heavy lifting. Yeah, they uh, they really owned their roles. Um, Emma came in, and and I think everybody felt she deserved that number one spot. So there was no question. And you know, for Natasha, who was rookie of the year the year before, played number one, All American, to take a step back and play number two. I mean, she, there was no complaining. There was no hanging her head. I mean, she just took on that role and did an amazing job and did it with such humility and same with Rosie. I mean, Rosie, she was our number one player. Um, my first year, she, that, which was her second year and she had to have major back surgery. I don't know if many people know this, but, um, her sophomore year, she really struggled with, with some injuries in her back and she kept seeing doctors and, you know, it got to the point where I actually was at the doctor's appointment with her and the doctor told her, if you do not get surgery, this is not going to get better. But with the surgery means you may never get to play competitive tennis again. And just to be in the office with her and, and feel that and just feel the pain with her that she was feeling in that moment and how scared she was. It was, it was really tough, but she ended up getting the surgery. She had to have a spinal fusion. Um, and so she redshirted that next year, came back, struggled a little bit coming back um, when it, during the COVID year, but then she got herself into the best shape she's ever been in in her life. Probably the best shape of anybody on our team. And, you know, after playing number one for us, came in, played number three and just loved it. I mean, she just... She was so healthy and so strong. And to see her do that after hearing a doctor tell her, you may never play tennis again. I mean, she just led the team with her resilience, her belief in herself. And what those three did in, in a conference like the ACC that was so strong, um, you know, six of the top 10 teams in the nation were from the ACC. I mean, every weekend was just such a battle. And you know, Emma was playing a bunch of these fifth year seniors who had so much um, experience, but they just embraced those roles. And honestly, they just worked really, really hard. And they committed so much to this team with, with their time, their effort, their emotions. And, you know, I was so proud of them. I mean, it was such a phenomenal year for those three. So, yeah. No, and, you know, talking about the ACC conference, and I just want to read this eight-match stretch your team had last season because talk about a murderer's row. Home for Georgia Tech and Duke, two victories, shout out. At Florida State, at Miami, the Florida swing, always a brutal swing, and obviously two, four, three losses for your team. You're then at Wake Forest, 5-2 win, at NC State, NCAA semifinalist, 4-3 loss. You then have the ACC tournament where you beat Duke, you lose to North Carolina. I mean, I think every team there, but what Miami Wake Forest, Georgia Tech ends up in the NCAA round of 16 and pushing towards the NCAA lead eight. And, you know, again, I know it, it's easy to say on paper, but was good thing, bad thing, difficult thing. How difficult is it for you when you're playing in a conference that deep, that loaded? How are you balancing, you know, again, getting these good matches with ensuring your team is healthy come the end of the season and not just completely burnt out? Yeah, it was, it was a little bit of a challenge. Um, it's, it's what you want as a coach to be in a, a conference like this, where you're getting to play the best, the best teams every single weekend and challenging yourself and, and seeing, you know, what do we need to work on? You know, you're putting yourself up against the best teams and you have to be resilient, you know, and that's definitely a focus of our program. And, you know, we have a lot of players on our team who, who are very resilient. So I think that that helped helped us work through that, that last half of the season, but it was, it was a strange season because the first half of our season was not nearly as strong as, as the second half. And so um, it was just, usually I think things are spaced out a little bit more, but the way it was set up for us, that was, that was just the situation, but um, it was great. I mean, we learned a lot. I think our, 
the bottom half of our lineup, I think at one point was kind of relying on the top half of our lineup. And we had to have a bit of a heart to heart with those guys. And, you know, they took it to heart. And I think they really put more effort in and, and understood that we can't just rely on one, two, and three to win every match um, for us. And so I think it was, it was tough at times, but I think that they learned so much and every single player on this team is so valuable and so important and has a role. And it got to the point where we really had to sit down and talk about that. And they had to recognize that and understand that. And they, and they took that on and they did a fantastic job. I mean, Heba on our team came at the end of the year. I mean, the whole match, almost the whole match when we played Tennessee in the round of 32 came down to her and she just showed a different mentality, a different toughness out there and clinched the match for us. And then we go to NCAAs and play Georgia and she, she wins her match at four. Um, and just, I mean, and she wins in doubles too. I mean, she just had this different confidence, but she had to change the way she was approaching her training. And she absolutely did that. And I think being just a first year last year, it was, it was excellent experience for her. And, and I think she learned a lot and she's taking that into this year. Mm -hmm. And you beat me to my question, which is when you look at Sophia, Amber and Heba, who are all back this season, you know, on paper, 13, nine, 13 and eight in, you know, at four and six, seven and 10 at five. First of all, in the ACC, those numbers are pretty good. But I, I suppose, you know, you get to the broader question. And I was fortunate enough to be at that Georgia match. And yes, it's 4-1 on paper. That was the longest 4-1 maybe in the history of the NCAA <laughs> tournament, a four-hour affair and just an absolute slog. You know, and yeah. you, you mentioned it. Your team, it wasn't just at the top, although Emma versus Jokic was fantastic, of course, um, and Leah versus Natasha, great matches. But it was one through six, your team was competing. And so I'm, you know, I'm curious in particular, four, five, six, what growth did you see from those players throughout the course of the season and how valuable will the lumps they took last season be obviously this year as they look to step up and, you know, up their contribution levels? Yeah, they just, they just took more ownership. They just realized I can't, I can't wait for somebody else to do this. And why, why not me? Why can't it be me? You know, and they took that into their everyday training. Cause you know, I think, I think at times they just felt like, those top three positions were just going to win every match for them. And they needed that reality check that, Hey, why not me? Why can't I be the person to step up and, and take this match? And um, yeah, that match against Georgia was, you know, it's tough thinking back on that because I just don't think we played our, our best and we had chances and credit to Georgia. They're an amazing team. Jeff and Drake have done such a phenomenal job there, but um, you know, I don't think Emma played her best. And then Natasha had a match point. Um, Amber had a set point in the first set. I think Sophia at six was up a set in four, two. Um, and we really didn't play well in doubles. You know, we lost, we won at three doubles, but we lost at one and two. And those teams went on. I mean, Emma and uh, Rosie went on to reach the semifinals of the individual tournament. Natasha and Sophia reached the quarterfinals. I mean, they're all American teams. And we just, I think, I think what that match did for us though, is gave us the experience that this team needs. I think that, you know, uh, Gina and I have been here now for four years. We're in our fifth year. And that was the first time we had played at the final site. Mm -hmm. um, you know, our team has only made national indoors one time. Um, we've, we've improved every year. You know, when we came in, the team was ranked 42 in the country. We're top 10 right now, but you need to gain those experiences to know what it feels like, know what it, you know, the crowd is like, know what the pressure is like, know what that morning's like before you walk out on that court. And, you know, I think we, we competed to the best of our ability that day without having experience, but I think now having that experience under our belt is really going to help help this team moving forward. Mm -hmm. And I, I do want to move forward and that was a perfect setup for me, but you, you've talked about ownership. And I think that's such a fascinating thing. And obviously for you, you're beginning year number five here at Virginia. Does it feel like you have ownership of this team? Now, I feel like everyone on the roster is someone you recruited. It's someone, you know, you have brought to Virginia, someone you want to be coaching and representing this program. From your own perspective, I'm curious, you know, again, you mentioned it first round of 16 for you while at the helm for this team. Does it feel like it is now a Coach O'Leary led team? <laughs> I think it's a, 
it's a staff led team. I have, you know, amazing, amazing uh, coaches in Gina and Tyson. I mean, I've been here from, you know, I hired Gina when, when I started and she's been phenomenal. I mean, she's so committed. She's such a student of the game. Um, and she's just always trying to get better. She works so hard. She's built great relationships with the players and, and same with Tyson. So Tyson's our volunteer coach and this is his third year. And I mean, he's all in and just loves tennis. Um, He's again, another one who's built such great relationships with the players. He's, he's so smart on court. He's so dedicated. And so, no, it's not a, an O'Leary led program. It's definitely credit to those guys. They've done a phenomenal job. And, you know, I think, I think, yeah, it's, it's the players right now that are, that are really starting to step up and lead this team. And I think as a coach, that's what you want. You want your players to be the ones leading this team. I love to hear it. And I'm curious, again, you talk about Emma making that double semifinal as well. Does that help in the singles just to be able to have a teammate still with you having, you know, last year was my first NCAA slog as well. And it's just like, you know, it gets long, especially for your, you know, for Emma, for Rosie, who are there since the round of 16. Yeah, it's a, it's a long, when you lose in the round of 16 and then you're there until the last day of the individual tournament, it's, it's long, but again, we had to be creative. So we were in a hotel for the team event. When we lost, we actually moved over to an Airbnb, which was 30 minutes from the site, but it had its own tennis court. It had a pool. It was kind of like a way for us to get away from really all the noise. I mean, there's a lot going on there and allow them to really stay, stay focused. And so, you know, it, it was long, but I think it was a really fun experience for all of us. I mean, Natasha, Sophia, Rosie, Emma, we're all in a Airbnb together and then my staff. And so we actually, we actually had a great time. And, and, you know, even when Sophia and Natasha lost, they wanted to stay there to support Rosie and Emma. And, and, you know, I think that's what Emma loves about college tennis too is you know you're on the pro tour and it's it's pretty lonely at times you know it's it's tough you're out there by yourself and you go to tournament after tournament by yourself where college tennis you have these teammates who are on the sidelines cheering for you supporting you in the good times and the bad times and I think it was so cool for her to be able to experience that moment with them you know and she talks about what that win meant to her and she's like I did it for this team and she's just such a team oriented person. And I think that's why, why she loves college tennis so much. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, to have that sort of success you talked about or a little bit earlier, what losing in the round of 16 does for your team. And, you know, yes, they have that low, but to end on the high of, you mentioned it, Natasha, Sophia, making the quarterfinals, Rosie, Emma, semifinals and doubles, Emma wins the singles title. Talk to me about the summer. Talk to me about the fall. Obviously, we'll get into the newcomers, but what, you know, first of all, I guess let's just start. How nice has it been to have a normal fall with your team once again? It's been fantastic. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there were so many great tournaments I felt like this fall. Um, and one of them that we went to, which was so strong, is the one that, you know, Simon with NC State runs at, at Cary. I mean, it's just an unbelievable event the teams he gets to come in and, and, you know, UNC also did an event that weekend. Um, and so half of our team went to UNC, half of our team went to NC state and just, you, you get such amazing matches. there, such great competition. Obviously all Americans is really strong and then fall nationals. Um, so, you know, I felt like our team got a lot of great competition this fall and, and got back into the swing of things. I think, I think for us, it's about, trying to figure out how to time everything because I feel like at times we don't get to train with them as much as I would like to have, you know, a training block. And cause there's just so many good tournaments and you don't want to miss out on these opportunities. It, we really need to figure out, you know, and that's figure out what's best for each player. You know, some players may need to train more. Some players need to play more. Some players need to go play more pro tournaments. And so it's, it's about, it's about figuring that out. And I think going from no tournaments to all these opportunities this fall, I think we probably could have maybe done a better job of figuring out what was best for each player. But, um, but no, I mean, we're very grateful to be back and, and playing tournaments in the fall. 
Yeah, no, well, it's so interesting to hear you say that. And, you know, I've warned you in advance, I wanted to pick your brain about some big picture college tennis topics. One of the things I've been asking coaches about this offseason is what should the role of the fall be? Because you talk to all of the SEC men's coaches and they go on and on raving about the hidden duels they played. And, you know, talking to other coaches, they talk about using the fall as a developmental period and do hidden duels, even if they're better for preparation for your team, hinder individuals development you know when you look for your program what do you view the role of the fall as what are you trying to you know best how do you best prepare your team using what you have in the fall yeah I think it's it's definitely a developmental period and I think it's it you have to look at each athlete and what they need and some players at times need to train they need a good two months they're maybe changing something in their game and they need that time to train in less matches um, other players who want to be pros need to play tournaments, not just hidden duels and experience. You play match after match after match after match. Um, and then other players, I think, I think the hidden duels are the most fun for the players in college. I enjoy them too. As a coach, I love being out there and everybody's playing at the same time. And it's just that incredible atmosphere that you get to feel in the spring. But I, I just don't think there's one way for, for everybody. I think there's, and there needs to be different opportunities for different players, which there are right now. And that's great. It's just as a coach and as a player figuring out what's that best pathway for you. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was, you know, you use the term training block. Is there a way to build in a Should there be a training block period in the college tennis calendar? Because, you know, some you talk about these players who have pro aspirations, you know, Emma Navarro is coming to campus to be coached. She's not just coming to play these one-off events. Would you like to see a bigger training block period worked into the college tennis schedule? I think so. Um, and it's, it's just tough trying to figure out when that would be. And one thing, one idea I heard actually was, you know, you look at our spring season and we start the beginning of January. I mean, we're going down to UNC to play a tournament the first weekend of January, January, oh, I guess second weekend, seventh and eighth. And then we play until the very end of May. So that's five straight months. And you look at some of these other sports like women's, like soccer and field hockey and they're, three to four months. And I always think about, okay, it's so tough at the end of the fall. We have to go into this, the eight hour period. We're not able to work with them that much. Then they go home for Christmas break. What if we made it so we couldn't start playing matches until, you know, February 1st or February 15th? I don't know how that would affect being able to get all the dual matches in, but at least it would give us kind of that training block right at the beginning of the year and maybe make this season somewhat more manageable for a lot of these athletes because it, it is a really, really long season. Um, you know, and then we talk about it, the, the NCAA tournament is so long. It's two weeks that these players are down in Orlando or longer than that. And so maybe that will feel more manageable if the season itself is, is shortened a little bit. So that was something I heard. I don't know. There's a lot of good ideas out there. And I don't know. It's just trying to figure out what's best for these athletes. Coach Goffey suggested a flipping of the schedule where you play the team duel in the fall and you start when women's soccer starts, you know, August and you, you know, you're done by December and then you're using the spring for the individuals and as a big training block for all of your athletes. He also was like also second semester seniors who don't want to go pro. They actually get a semester of college as a normal student. And I was like, oh. That's a pretty good idea. You're right. There's there's a lot of good ones floating out there. You mentioned the eight hour rule, which our listeners are probably now familiar with. You know, you get four hours on court, four hours off training when you're not in the 20 hour weeks. You're a former player. So obviously you understand a two time Dean's List honoree. You understand that what it takes, the rigors of being a student athlete. That said, and particularly, I'm sure at a program like Virginia, is the eight hour rule reflective of the modern demands in, you know, for these pro aspiring players? How frequently are you put in a position where someone will come to you and say, coach, can you work with me today? And you're just like, sorry, you've already hit your four hours. Yeah, all the time. Um, <laughs> especially this year, we had, you know, four new players and they're like, what is happening right now? What is, what are you talking about? We're not having practice. I don't understand what's going on. Um, so, you know, every year we're having to explain that to them. And it is really disappointing to have to tell your player, um, no, I can't hit with you. I know you want to work on things, but I'm, I'm not allowed to do it. You know, and I understand why they do it, but I still feel like if a kid wants, if it's optional and a kid asks to hit, I wish we could do that. You know, 
some of the players that I've coached, I've seen the ones who have improved the most are the ones who have taken that time in the summer to come in and do the optional workouts. You know, I mean, Gina, my assistant was one of them. Uh, she, you know, at Carolina, that's what she did the summer between her junior and, and senior year. And I know this was during the summer when it was optional, but she took advantage of that and just asked and asked and asked. And we, we were able to hit with her and train with her and work with her. And she went from playing four and five on our team to number one and became an all American that year was four in the country. Um, you know, Megan Kelly is another example of a player that I had here at UVA in my first few years, her summer between her junior and senior year, she did the same thing and, you know, went up, I think a hundred spots in the rankings. So a lot of the improvement that we see is in those, those time blocks when they can, ask for extra and do it on their own and work on things that they really want to work on. And I think that's a great opportunity in December to be able, or November and December to be able to ask for that. And not everybody has to do it. Not every kid's going to want to do it, but for the ones that want to keep keep working on things and want that extra help, I don't know why we're having to tell them no. So it's definitely frustrating. I think with that, I think it, since we know that's the rule, it's important for us to recruit players who can be you know self-sufficient and during those moments we'll be the leaders on our team to be like hey guys let's get out there let's practice let's let's play matches let's train and so you know fortunately we have pretty good leadership on our team but I think as a coach you have to look at that because you do have these times during the year where you're not allowed to to work with them at all so it's it's a challenge for sure when you were a student athlete, did you know who your compliance officer was? And this isn't a trick question, I promise. Because the reason I bring it up, these players know who their compliance officer is, right? You would imagine now with how open these relationships and how intimate they are that, you know, uh, Sophia could look at the compliance officer and say, this is me. Like, I, this is not forced. I, You know me. Like, I want to do this. I just feel like that's the difference between how that rule would not get abused now versus how it may have gotten abused a decade ago, right? Right, right. Yeah. And I mean, that is, it's important for us to talk to these athletes and talk to them. If you want to see this change, you got to take ownership and you got to take responsibility and you go let that be heard. So yeah, a lot of it's on, on the student athletes and, and, you know, it's important for them to understand, you know, if you want something, use your voice, you know, go in and speak up. So um, yes, they definitely know who their compliance officers are here. But if you ask me at Carolina, I cannot remember at all. So. <laughs> exactly. That's why that's to me where it's like, come on, we can figure this out. Um, but all right, you talk about bringing in recruits who can be self-driven. Obviously, you bring in three new freshmen this year, number six recruiting class, according to tennisrecruiting.net. Talk to me about Elaine, Melody, Nicole, what's clicked for them so far this fall? Uh, they have just come in and hit the ground running. I mean, they just, they love tennis. Um, that's been a, a huge thing that I've seen them bring to our team. And, you know, our, our team does love tennis, but for different, different reasons. And these, these guys just love to play. I mean, Melody could be out there all day, every day. She's an unbelievable athlete. She's so competitive. She's so fun to be on the court with. Um, and same with Elaine and, and Elaine's just, you know, she's kind of goofy out there and jokes around. She's, she's very similar to Emma actually. Um, and so it's been, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, Nicole, who is uh, the sister of Alex Kiefer on the men's team. I mean, she is just such, she, she's so organized. She's done amazing academically. She shows up to practice and, you know, works so hard. So we've, We've had a great, great group of, of kids come in this fall. We actually also had a transfer uh, with Sarah Ziodato, um from Baylor, and she's been amazing. Um, you know, she's from Italy, and she brings just different experience being, you know, international and coming from another school, but um, just a great, great team player. I think she's going to be an amazing leader for us one day. Um, she just has has such mature, maturity and and she works really hard and it's been, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, it's definitely been a big change when you bring in four players on a team of nine, but it's been a lot of fun and, and they fit in really well. So it's been great. No, it, it's definitely a young group. And, you know, you mentioned Sarah, uh, who you bring over from Baylor. I'm curious how you balance these two things right now. And it's always interesting to hear how every coach goes about this, but, you know, 
bringing in four-year players, bringing in freshmen, you know you're going to be able to build a foundation uh, with versus knowing, hey, if I look at the transfer portal right now, and obviously it's a bit accentuated given the five high school graduating classes because of that extra year of eligibility, but you know, I can go find a five. I can go find a six if need be. How do you balance those two things in shaping your roster? Yeah, I mean, we use both. Obviously, we've we have had a couple of transfers come in, and and for us, it's just about finding the right fit for our program on the court, tennis wise, and also off the court. Um, you know, personality wise and culture wise. I mean, that's that's a big big part for us. Um, Gina and I, when we first came in, our main goal was to really improve the culture here. And I think, I think it has gotten a lot better. And I think our team's at the point where it's like, we're going to do whatever we can to protect this culture, um, you know, because it's, it's, it's just a really special, special group we have. And, and I think we've brought in the right players. And so it, I don't, I, I do look at the transfer portal. Mm -hmm. It's just, to me, it's just about finding the right fit. It doesn't matter if they're a transfer or first year. Um, it's, it's just about finding the right fit. Well, in terms of, you know, again, finding that fit, I'm curious. You played nine doubles pairings last year, which is right about average for whatever it's worth. Um, you've played 11 already this fall. And I know, you know, no, I think only two teams have played more than three, four matches together. But I'm curious, you know, what the approach has been to doubles this fall. You searching for pairing, just trying to get all these young players into the system. What have you been looking for? Yeah, I mean, with four new players, you got to try different things. Because <laughs> yeah. um, if we don't, we won't know, you know. So it's just, you know, for me, obviously, you know, there's there's a system that we work with with our doubles, but a lot of it is about, you know, matching up with somebody that you work well with um, personality wise too. And so, um, yeah, we're, we've been working really hard this fall to try and figure out what that looks like. Um, you know, for me as a player, I had, I think two, maybe three doubles partners the whole time I was in college. Um, you know, my partner who Jenna Long, we, when we won it our senior year, we had played together for three and a half years. And I think there definitely is something to having that experience and playing that long with, with the same person, you know, what they're thinking, you know, when they're going to move, you know, what their strengths are, you know, what their weaknesses are. So, um, you know, last year, I think we, I'm trying to even remember who changed up so often to have nine different pairings um, because <laughs> I felt like I felt like there was one point I was like, oh my gosh, should we make a change with, you know, we had Emma and Rosie at one for so long. We had Sophia and Natasha at two for so long. We did change some things at three and we kept feeling like, do we need to make a change or should we let them work through these things? And, you know, we kept them together. And I think we were like a week late from, you know, when they peaked because they peaked so well at NCAAs in the individual tournament and they were playing amazing. And we knew they had that. We knew they were great pairings and worked well together. It just would have been nice had it been, you know, a week earlier <laughs> yeah. when we played Georgia, but you never know. And, and I think a lot of it is about personality and, and working well with that player. Um, so yeah, we're still trying to figure out what our doubles is going to be. We don't know yet, but um, but I think that's that's part of the fun of it. So. Um, yeah, this will be the nerdiest question I ask, but I'm curious, do you emphasize serve and volley to your players the way it perhaps was once emphasized on you? Like, I feel like when I look at shifts in college tennis doubles, one of the biggest changes in the past five, I mean, really, you could even go just as recent as five years is that you see a lot of, you know, serve, stay back, find that first forehand much more than perhaps you would have in the, you know, early 2010s. Emphasize it? Not enough. I think we, I think <laughs> we could be more, but I mean, I think we have some amazing volleyers on our team. I mean, you look at Melody and you look at Elaine, I mean, they are phenomenal volleyers. So I think we could use it more than we do. And, and those two have come in and used it more than we have in the past. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great play and, and I would love to see it be more of a part of, of college tennis. Um, but but yeah, it's, it's so much still, you know, hit that serve, stay back, find your strength. Um, but, uh, but I think, I think we could move in that route a little bit more. What do you think about it? 
I mean, it's it's a bias, right? Like I was always told serve and volley, serve and volley. And so in my head, you want to move forward in the doubles. You want to be at the net. It beats the alternative of not being at the net and seeding it to your opponents. And you want to be the aggressors, be on your front foot. I think serve and volley is the best tool to do that. That said, I don't have Emma Navarro and Natasha Subash and, you know, all these players <laughs> lacing forehands at my feet. And so it's a little bit different. I do feel like, though, it really has been de-emphasized. Like, again, and I had a coach say it was Alex Damajan of Virginia, who was the first, like, in 2011, when he was serving back and finding first forehands, it was a revelation to coaches to be like, well, you can do that. Um, and I, I just, I do think that shift, I don't know, it's just like, I feel like the teams that press forward, they are the ones that have success. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and there's, there's players that are, it's just comes more natural to them than others. I think you, you go watch these junior tournaments and these kids aren't learning to really serve in volley. I mean, th there may be some out there, of course, but you go watch and it's like, there's two players playing singles out there <laughs> um, instead of doubles. So when they come in, I don't feel like a lot of them are super prepared to be able to serve in volley, but I think it's an excellent skill to have. And, and yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm surprised we don't see it more in uh, college tennis right now. For me, it's also the death of the I formation. Whenever, I mean, again, was I good? Well, if it's a binary system of like broadly in the world, bad or good, I think I would be the good system. But it, you know, compared to you guys, not good. Let's be clear here. Um, but like if I had struggles in service games, we'd always go, hey, let's go I just so like there's some sort of movement because that's our solution out of this. And like I feel like that's never the solution. Now it's serve and stay back instead of let's serve and just get them like, you know, I feel like a, a hold game. You're just as likely to get broken because of a bad server as you are by someone whose partner just let in their feet throughout the entire game and they don't move once. Like, I feel like that's just as debilitating to the surface game. I warned you we were about to nerd out. <laughs> I love it. I love talking about doubles. I think there's so much strategy in doubles. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's so fun. And yeah, when you have good players who can do different things and they can volley, they can come to the net. I mean, it just makes it, it's so fun. So yeah, no, absolutely. And again, when you look at your team, you've mentioned it, the depth you have this season, it feels like, you know, one through nine, all of these players could slot in at the lineup at some point throughout the course of the season. And when you look at the schedule uh, you've put together for your team, obviously Stanford, Arkansas, James Madison coming to town kickoff weekend, that's you know, a brutal uh, section, no matter what you've, I, I think you've got that UNC invite and then three matches before the kickoff weekend, but, you know, talk to me about the schedule. What are you putting your team through this year? Yeah. I mean, we're also still in the ACC conference, <laughs> so we're going to get <laughs> some phenomenal matches there. Um, but yeah, I mean, when we saw that Stanford and Arkansas and JMU were coming to UVA, we we're really excited about it. I mean, since I've been here, we've never played Stanford in a dual match. We've never played Arkansas. We actually have never played JMU in a dual match either. So um, it's some new new teams and and we're just, we're really excited about it. It's great opportunities um, and to be able to play at home, hopefully with fans um, because, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to the Boar's Head, but it gets it gets really loud in there and, and we have great support from the community here and and so we're just really excited about it. We can't wait. I mean, we've, we're preparing, we're getting ready and, and just really, really looking forward to that weekend. This is again, um, because I know I will get yelled at if I don't ask this question, will you build in opportunities for Emma to go play pro events? I mean, obviously she wins at 25 K this fall and quarterfinals last year in Charleston. Is that something you guys will, you know, is that something you're going through the schedule knowing, okay, there will be weekends where we don't, you know, hopefully don't have Emma cause she's out competing in the pros. Yeah. So, I mean, last year she played two pro tournaments in the middle of the season. Um, and then she also played the pro tournament here at Boar's Head that happens in April so yeah, and we'll sit down and we'll work through that together and figure out what's what's best for her, what's best for the team. Uh, she did play those three tournaments last spring and didn't miss one dual match. Um, she she played a tournament down in Charleston and we had a dual match at Wake Forest on Friday. She lost Thursday night and she was there the next morning. We had a hit at 10 a.m. and she was there ready to do the practice that morning and. I don't know. She just, 
she doesn't want to miss it. She doesn't want to miss any of the team events. She wants to do it all and she's doing it all. I mean, she's also getting incredible grades while she's here. I mean, just an unbelievable uh, student athlete. And, and yeah, it's just, it's fun to see what she's doing for, you know, this team and, and for the game and for college tennis. I'm just super proud of her. And, and yeah, we will, you know, we'll figure out what's best for her this spring. And obviously her development is is number one and and she's she's continuing to get better so it's it's exciting mm-hmm. no and you know again with that said i want to ask some big picture things and you referenced one there how valuable is it to have a pro event on campus and you know how valuable a piece is that to recruiting as well yeah i think it's it's valuable because I mean, there's so many great players that come to that event and for our own players to be able to walk out and watch some of these pro players, watch the way that they compete and the way that they carry themselves. I mean, it's it's a great learning experience for our players. Um, and then it's a great opportunity for a few who are offered the wild card. Um, it's tough because it's right between the ACC tournament and the NCAA tournament, and then this tournament's on clay. So it is a little bit of a tough adjustment um, going from hard courts all, all season, then this one week of clay, and then back to NCAA. So it's a little tough. But um, yeah, I think to just just see these other players who are walking around Boar's Head, and, and they're such high level, and, and you get to go out there and watch them play and compete. And for some of our players to be able to compete against them, I mean, it's it's great experience. So, um, you know, Ron Manila, who runs it, has done a phenomenal job, and he he loves hosting these pro tournaments. There's one for the men in the fall, and and he do, he does a really really good job. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And with that said, give me the pitch. Why should I come to Charlottesville? Why should I go to Virginia? Move be a Virginia fan moving forward. <laughs> Uh, good question. Um, you know, for me, when I when I took over this job, I really wanted to be at a place where I felt like the players I would bring in would get the best of both worlds. They'd get a phenomenal experience on the court. Um, there's amazing resources here. We're in the ACC conference. We're competing against the best teams almost every weekend. And at the same time, they're getting a world-class education from UVA. Um, and I think what's great about UVA is, is they have such a good support system academically for the athletes. So, you know, as long as you're managing your time, you're not going to have to sacrifice one for the other. You can do both and you can do both really, really well. Um, I think too, um, you know, I don't know if you're going to find a staff that cares about their players as people more than I feel like Gina and Tyson and I do. I mean, we look at them like they're our family. You know, I had a son, he's two now. And when I found out I was having a boy, I was like, yes. Cause I feel like I literally have nine daughters already. <laughs> I mean, we're just super close and players that have graduated come back all the time. They come over for dinner. I mean, Rosie's babysitting my son. She comes over for dinner all the time. She still lives here in Charlottesville. Um, and I think, I think it's just the people here, you know, when I came in, there's just such a great atmosphere of other coaches. I think the men's team, they, uh, you know, we're really close to the men's team. They come out to our matches. We go out to their matches. Uh, and it's. Really special, um, you know, there's, there's great tennis everywhere, you know, at a lot of these programs, but I think it's, it's the people that really separate, um, and, and really change a kid's life. So it's, you know, you got to figure out who those best people are, who are going to support you, be there for you in the good times and the bad times. And, um, I think as a recruit, it's just, it's just taking that time to really figure, figure that out. But, um, yeah, I would say those are, those are the main reasons. (laughs) No, I mean, okay. This isn't going to be unfamiliar to listeners. Why am I a college tennis fan is because late two thousands, early 2010s, Virginia's athletic department was so much better at getting out highlights of all of the matches. And so, you know, I've, virtually been to Boar's Head many a times. Now I've never been there in person, but it's on my short. I'm going to get there. That is, that's a promise to you, uh, to the listeners. You just, there's so much, you know, I keep waiting for the national indoors to go back there. And I know yeah. this year it's Seattle and Madison, but Charlottesville it's got to be on the rotation sometime soon, right? 2024 ish. We would love to get it on there. So yeah. um, it's not right now, but we would we would love to do that. So um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I remember as a as a 
coach coming back here and playing those national indoor series it's a it's a great facility to do it so we we would love to do it yeah absolutely well then with that said some final ones for you obviously she knows how good she is i'm sure she doesn't worry about these sorts of things but uh, you know no emma in the in the december ita rankings obviously that's an outlier i'm curious your thoughts on the rankings my thing i'm trying to push I feel like we should go to a 12-month system, just a rolling rankings. Tennis is a 12-month sport. I don't know why we don't just drop out the seniors after they graduate and just keep on going as is. Is that something you would like to see explored? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I haven't I haven't thought about it that much. Um, you know, I know Emma's not in the rankings, but yeah, I guess we're just not worried about it right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to do it the way you're talking about. Um, Cause yeah, I mean, it is a little strange not to see her in the rankings, but I think we just, we're just not worried about it. <laughs> no, I like would, should the winner of the NCA individuals get a wild card regardless of nationality? That's a good question. Um, I do think that if we, if they open it up to allowing international players to get that wild card for winning the NCAA tournament, I think it would improve college tennis. I think that you're going to get more of the better international players coming to play college tennis, which I think overall would improve college tennis, which is something I'm always looking to improve the level of college tennis. I think that would be great. Um, but I also understand the other side of it that, you know, it's a, it's an American tournament and they want to support the Americans. So it's tough. I, I mean, I see it. I see it both ways. Uh, what do you think about that? What are your thoughts on it? I think you nailed it. I would give it up to the winner of college tennis regardless, because even though it's an international sport, I don't want to say the burden of college tennis rests solely on the USTA shoulder, but like the USTA is the federation most responsible for college tennis as such. You want you should have a representative at your biggest event of the season. And the U.S. Open is the USTA's crown jewel. If you are going to be invested in college tennis, why not have a representative of the sport there whenever possible? And to do that, mm -hmm. I think you know, like is a is a Paul Jubb or a Stella Perez Somariba any worse of a representative of college tennis than Emma Navarro or Sam Riffis? I say no. And so that's why I would give it out regardless. I also just think you know, the dream scenario here, and I'm going to pitch it on you because the next question was going to be, would you be fine if they move the NCAA individuals to the fall? My dream scenario, and I, not a shock, I think to you at this point, I like to dream big, play NCAA individuals the second week of the US Open. Like that to me is the time to do it because it's the biggest platform for college tennis. You're looking to fill time in the second week of a Grand Slam anyways. It's New York where there are college graduates from every school I know it would be difficult, you know, there's 0.1% of athletic departments that would sponsor seniors to come back and play a fall event after they've graduated, but like, worry about that later. This, to me, that's how you grow the game, move it to the fall and find a way to play it that week. Okay, so you would, how they qualify in the spring. But so, then yeah. the tournament won't be held until the second week of the U.S. Open. Exactly. And that's where the 12-week rolling rankings come into play, where it's like we have to do – or 12-month, because it's like we have to find a way to make this most accurate. Mm -hmm. That's actually a really good idea. <laughs> I, I haven't thought about that. And, yeah, it's – you know, the U.S. Open such a prestigious event. And to do it there, to spot – you know, put a spotlight on college tennis – at the biggest event in the US. Um, I don't know. I think that that's a really interesting idea. Um, you came up with that? that I was, love it. I don't have a two-year-old son. I don't have nine daughters. I have a lot of time on my hands. <laughs> so that was, that was the byproduct of time. Um, all right, again, big picture here. I don't, I don't mean to insinuate that either is a problem, but of course we're talking growth of the game here. Does college tennis have a product problem or does college tennis, is it more of a product problem or a marketing problem? Like for me, I think the product's great. It's just about how do we get it in front of more faces moving forward? Where are you in that sort of argument? I would agree that I feel like it's more of a marketing problem. Um, and I think so many people are talking about how do we get tennis, college tennis on TV? And your idea and what you did with the red zone, I loved it. 
my husband, okay, so my husband was a college athlete. He played football at UNC. And so he's, he's into the tennis too, and very supportive of college tennis and my team and all that. And, you know, I've talked to him a lot about this and he had that same idea about the red zone. He was so mad when you did it. Cause he was like, that's what I wanted to do because I just, I feel like we're trying to figure out how to fit tennis into TV instead of how can we fit TV into college tennis? And I thought that was a really, really cool idea. And that's what people want to watch is, you know, when it's down to the final doubles match um, or it's the match point of, you know, this team match or whatever it may be. I thought that that was such a good idea. So that's my feelings on that. (laughs) I am beat red blushing right now. Just so you know, Uh, that is, that's very kind. Yeah, I, I agree. I like, I think it's just, again, how do we, now there are some format things because four hour match is always going to be difficult. One thing I keep thinking the next evolution, I think simultaneous start might someday be in college tennis's future. Where are you on that? I could see that, you know, because it would shorten a match significantly. And I think you could do it without changing, you know, the structure of the match. So you could still play two out of three for the, for the doubles match and two out of three for the singles. You know, I want to see, I don't want to see the the scoring of tennis change so much that you get players who want to be a professional when they bypass college tennis because it's just so different than what it's like on the professional tour. So I think it's just important to really keep the scoring somewhere. I love the no ad ad. I think that that's great. Um, but I think if you change things too much, I think you're going to lose some of these better players coming to play college tennis because it's just, it, it might become so different from, from pro tennis. But I think the simultaneous, you could still still keep it the way it is, but just play all those matches at the same time. No, so. I, I, I completely agree with you. I also think simultaneous opens up a couple of opportunities. So I'm going to throw them at you before we end. Substitutions. One, you know, you get one soccer substitutions, you sub someone out there done for good. And we're not saying like, you know, Emma can go from one to three to six and win six matches in a match, although that would be sick. So maybe (laughs) we should keep that on the table. Um, But would you be fine with this substitutions? Does that compromise development? Like I had one coach argue that if a player knew they could get subbed out, it would actually help their focus immensely because it'd be like, I can't afford a five minute blip or I'm getting yanked. Would you be in favor of substitutions? Yeah, I think it would be, it would be great. So I have a question though, if you were to sub somebody, does it have to be somebody who's been on the bench to come in or could it be somebody like when you said, Emma, like somebody finishes their match, then they can sub in for somebody else. So I love that we're getting nuanced here. Again, I wish you all could see the smile on my face. For me, it would be if you play doubles or you're on the bench in this simultaneous start format, then you could sub into singles, but you can't play two singles matches. Okay. I mean, I think that's also giving more players an opportunity to play on your team. So I like that. And yeah, I mean, so many other sports are allowed to sub players in and out. I think it'd be awesome to see that become a part of part of college tennis. My real one, and I'm stealing this from a fellow Crack Rackets contributor. If there's an injury timeout or someone hurts themselves, like just let someone from the bench sub in. Like who is a, who is a retirement in a dual match benefiting? No one. And so like, yeah, sure. Like other sports, they would not. Yeah. So I agree with you. All right. Other one coin toss wasted opportunity. We can do better. So we're throwing it out one point drop and hit head coach versus head coach winner decides the serving arrangements. Yes or no. Does it have to be the head coach? Could I, could I sub Gina in for that point? So the rule, (laughs) the rule we're going with is you got to be on, you have to be over 50 to get subbed out as a head coach, which you are not. So it's an issue. Um, <laughs> let's see if I could play just a forehand cross court point, no serve, no backhand, then, then I'm in. Um, no, it's all chip and charge. Cause uh, you can make passes anymore. Like, let's be honest here. So who can get to the next oh man, that oh. would be hilarious. Um, yes, I would, I would. I would love it. I would be, I would be so nervous. It'd probably be good for me to feel those nerves. I'd be like, Oh, now I know exactly what you guys are feeling. But, um, but no, I, I think it'd be fun. I mean, I think, 
I don't know if that will ever happen, but I think it's a it's a good idea. Just like you versus Brian, or just like again, all of these matchups. I'm in. Or rock, paper, scissors. Let's just get the competition going uh right away. You know, just have some fun. All right, it. last one lawless lineups. Away team submits in advance, home team gets to match up however they want. I don't like it. I think <laughs> I think you want to play the best players, play the best players. And I don't know. That's the fun of college tennis. It's so fun to see these super close matches. And I think you would have like some blowouts. And sure, it might be fun for for the home team to get a few more wins. But I think for for college tennis in general, no. Yeah. I don't, I don't love that. That's fair. All right. Well, with all that said, coach, um, I guess a, a sappy one here, but when fans watch your team compete this season, what do you want the takeaway to be? Um, I want them to just see a team who, you know, is, is definitely gritty. Um, but a team that, that loves to compete, just loves to be out there is playing with such joy and embracing the moment and just, just having a, having a great time, having fun competing and, and yeah, just a team that really plays for each other. Yeah, no, I love it. Well, coach, thank you so much again for taking the time to chat today. Listeners aren't going to be aware of this. We had some major technical difficulties at the start of today's show, and I very much appreciated your patience. We were able to figure it out, thankfully. And for whatever it's worth, we have your team as our preseason number five in our college tennis countdown. And so obviously we know how talented you all are, and we are very much looking forward to you all compete. So stay safe, stay healthy, and good luck to you all in 2022. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for having me and, and glad, glad we could work through that te technical difficulty at the beginning, but, uh, but it's been, it's been a pleasure and I really appreciate you having me on here. So uh, thank you. Of course, tell your husband, I'm looking for a color commentator. So if he's looking for a role on Fridays, we'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> awesome. But, uh, well, thank no, you so much, Coach. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Bye, well. Alex. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.